It's been six years since DOD published its first ever roadmap to build the information environment into its warfighting strategies. In the meantime, Congress has been pushing the department to add more details to what operations in the information environment, or OIE, really means. Still, the concept has had a real impact on DOD's spending behavior. Robert Bauerlein is a recently retired Army Information Warfare officer, now a principal consultant at Frost & Sullivan. He spoke with Federal News Network's Jared Serbu about the trends he's seen in his research. Bob, thanks for taking the time to talk to us today. I appreciate it. And, and before we dig into some of the findings that you came away with in this report, I, I think we should define our terms. It seemed like there was a, at least a little bit of ambiguity around what DOD meant by operations in the information environment when their strategy first came out a few years ago. Maybe that's gelled a little more up to this point, but but most importantly, for purposes of your report, how do you map your findings onto the way the department's thinking about OIE and and, and what, what do you mean when you say OIE? So, you know, what I think about when, uh, when we talk about OIE, this is just my perspective, but those are actions and activities that are going to provide you with an information or decision advantage in the information environment itself. And so our previous uh, doctrine had referred to it as information-related capabilities and didn't really spell them out. And before that, it was core-supported and related capabilities, uh, which really kind of lended itself to a kind of like a stovepipe approach. And so with OIE, I think, you know, the the goal here is to uh, is to uh, do away with a stovepipe approach and try and get a more integrated and holistic strategy and actions and activities that support that. And what kind of actual real world requirements do you see feeding into this bucket that that, that you've been as OIE? I think there's probably two factors that are that are kind of driving requirements that I've seen. And the first one is, of course, the changing of the operational environment itself and the the, the changing characteristic of conflict. You know, the senior leadership within the, uh, the Department of Defense has, has spoken out uh, several times on that. There was a 36-star memo that went out to the intelligence community that asked them to declassify information so that it could be used uh, to achieve goals and objectives that were important uh, to our national security. General Clark recently came out. He's a commander of Special Operations Command. He says that they need to invest in capabilities to stay competitive in the information space. In the Marine Corps, um, took a three-star billet you know, out of hide, and that's that's uh, no small pill to swallow for such a small force. But the position is going to oversee OIE and the information maneuver career field that's associated with that. Um, the Air Force took their intelligence headquarters and they took their information warfare uh, headquarters and combined the two to make an information warfare organization. Uh, but the other thing that's been interesting has been the legislative approach to this too. And I think, you know, we often see Congress get involved in things immense fiduciary responsibility with oversight. But uh, Section 1631 of the 2020 National Defense Authorization Act really kind of uh, put the, uh, the heat on the Office of the Secretary of Defense to identify a primary information operations advisor. And this PIOA and the deputy PIOA was just recently named. They are going to conduct a posture review for OIE. So they're going to take a look at the strategy where that's at and take a look at uh, some of the broader undertakings within the Department of Defense and try and, you know, basically make an assessment of where we're at and make some recommendations probably on where we need to go. And so as you see those pushes, both from the military leadership and from the Hill, are we at a point yet where we can see programs and actual spending in DOD taking shape in response to those pushes? I mean, we, we already see that. But in the study, we point out a few things uh, that are already happening. And, and the most interesting, you kind of break this down into like two different groups. I mean, you, you have uh, capabilities that are under development right now, and some of them are already in place. And then you have 
a professional workforce or professional services requirement to go along with that. And that's kind of the, the thing that I find most interesting is it's that's real hard to put a to put a figure on, wrap your arms around, because there are so many things related to information and OIE that it's hard to bend them all the same. But some of the things that, that jump out of me are some of the stuff that's working with DARPA, for example, with semantic forensics. There's research testing and development going on in algorithmic warfare and cross-functional teams. There's a uh, influence campaign awareness and sense-making. There's adversary influence. Uh, there's another one with DARPA for adversary influence operations detection, modeling, and simulation simulations. So uh, there's a there is a, a lot coming on, and it's really kind of a, a developing marketplace, if you will, that some of these technologies will uh, will bring to bear. Is it possible to assign or es- estimate dollar figures that are attached to these new opportunities that you see emerging? All we can do is take a look at right now what's already been spent. And just in adversary influence operations detection and modeling alone, I think that was $661 million that was uh, put forward on that. And that's just one initiative that's going on research, testing, and development. I think it was $250.1 million for algorithmic warfare. Um, semantic forensics, which is uh, detecting uh, malign influence in in media sources and uh, disingenuous activity, um, actually pretty much smaller. That's only twenty three point four million, and these are developmental. So, you know, what comes out of this could actually become larger, um, or it could stay the same. So, again, it's kind of a developing market. And so, as we see the the department kind of trying to restructure itself around this OIE construct, what do the companies that it's been working with for years need to do to, to get themselves best positioned to take advantage of some of the opportunities that you've just been talking about? So think about this kind of uh, along three rounds. And the first one that jumps out at me is uh, professional OIE services. You know, market participants are going to have to build a reservoir of professional subject matter experts and then identify where those opportunities are and then how to, how to satisfy them contractually. You know, the, what really drives some of this work is, uh, OI expertise is somewhat of a military, it's a boutique-type capability, and you're going to have to go out and participate in the marketplace to see where those opportunities are at. But that's really not different than anything else that you do. But large operational headquarters probably drive most of the demand in this type of work. And, you know, those areas are, you know, obviously in the national capital region, uh, Tampa, um, Florida, Stuttgart, um, and then Fayetteville, and then Hawaii, of course, right, where the, the COCOMs are. And so, you know, those are the areas and locations where those opportunities geographically lie. So, you know, and they're just going to have to basically network and identify where those opportunities are and then build a portfolio that they can go out and meet that demand. The second thing I think that was important that jumped out at me was this kind of artificial intelligence, uh, what I call artificial intelligence or sensing and understanding for decision making. This kind of gets back to, you know, you have a professional services side of it, but then you have a capability that, that the military would be able to leverage to do this, right? So, you know, research and development of uh, publicly available information and data feeds and standardization and open formats that the DOD or the military could, could use to, to, to do this. You know, some predictive analytics that would answer questions and then diagnostic and prognostic questions that they would be able to, to answer and get insight on. The challenge there is going to be, I think, with the delivery of innovation solutions that will adhere to privacy protection norms within our country and other countries. And, you know, how do you classify and maintain privacy and personal information that's associated with that? Some of the stuff is publicly available, 
but you know we're a country of rules and laws and we have to follow those rules and laws and we have to make sure that we do it the right way that's something that they're going to have to figure out going forward and it's not an easy nut to crack the last piece of that i think is probably cyber enabled oie which you know i think successful participants are going to have relationships with some of their customers or clients uh, within the department of defense cyber command and then the combatant commands as well and they'll have to collaborate across uh, the intelligence community and private industry to identify how they're going to carry this out. You know, businesses that are doing this will offer a portfolio of products and expertise that fuse open source intelligence with traditional military intelligence sources at a speed for decision making that will be most successful, especially in the cyber environment where things happen in the blink of an eye. And that's really, I think, where this one's at. Interesting. Um, I, I want to wrap up on the skills piece that you mentioned toward the beginning of that answer, Bob. Um, can can you tell us any more about sort of the discrete skill sets that you think this stuff is is going to need? And since it is, as you said, boutique, are you really only going to find that stuff with people who are veterans who've who've recently left one of the military services? So yeah, I mean, speaking of firsthand experience, I mean, your 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 operational skills and expertise atrophy uh, the longer you are away from a service or from an active role. I think the other piece of this, when we talk about AI enhanced sensing and decision-making and cyber enabled OIE, uh, there's a big requirement for data analysis and being comfortable with data and processing it and analyzing it and using data to tell a story that will help somebody make a, a decision. And so um, that is something that I don't necessarily know from my own personal experience. It's not something that I had to deal with a lot while I was on active duty. Um, you know, within the Army, there's a, there's a specialty functional area, uh, operation systems research uh, that, that fulfills that role. But, you know, the private industry, in terms of identifying like collective behavior and group behavior and purchasing and buying behaviors, uh, they've been able to, to monetize data in order to, to deliver a product suggestion to a person at a right particular time so that they answer that. So if you know, if you think about if you think about Amazon and Amazon, you know, tracks all kinds of things that you buy in different parameters, where you live, how old you are, what you bought in the past. And then they know what you want to buy, arguably before you know, <laughs> you know, you want to buy it. Right. And so it's it's that kind of analysis to be able to to read the tea leaves of the data in order to make a prediction about behavior. Robert Bauerlein, a retired Army Information Warfare officer, now a principal consultant at Frost & Sullivan, speaking with Federal News Network's Jared Serbu. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration, and over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security. She's been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to it? as a leader, and what about them inspired you? you know, I often think about this because, you know, sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most as being somebody that throughout our career has, you know, been at the highest levels and all. But, I, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, and uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. 
And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy, his name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had wadded tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her, I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there's so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might've had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, uh, whether, you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment and, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village that was, I think my inspiration for going on to, I hope, become the leader, um, you know, that, that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood. And I, and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind, that, that what we say and do, admit, especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style? And, and how has that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared, you know, about making sure that that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and, and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2, a social security administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. It's, that's That was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney. But, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office. And lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, from there, I went to the Department of Defense. 
And I found this, this career field called labor and employee relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a, a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating. Um, you know, from hi historical to current uh, current times, I just, it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is I never really said no to anything. If people ask me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I, I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time. Cough and cold season is here. Introducing Ricola Max Throat Care, Ricola's most powerful drop yet. It's the best of Swiss nature wrapped around a powerful liquid menthol center for maximum relief from your worst cough and sore throat. Maximum nature for maximum relief. Try the new Ricola Max now, available in the cold and cough aisle. Ricola. It's in our nature. Hey, hon, what you doing with your fun? Do flowers have best friends? I don't know. Hey, look. Whoa. Some answers can only be found in nature. Discover the unsearchable. Visit discovertheforest.org to find a trail near you. Brought to you by the United States Forest Service and the Ad Council.